What does it mean for an album to change your life? We asked that question to some of our favorite writers last year in a series of essays that are part of our ongoing Turning the Tables project. In that project, we set out to challenge people's ideas about what matters in music and what makes music great, and we do it by centering the voices and stories of women and non-binary artists and writers. Artists like Tracy Chapman, who we're listening to right now, and whose debut album had a really meaningful impact on one of our guests today. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. Maybe we make a deal. Maybe together we can get somewhere. Any place is better. Starting from zero, got nothing to lose. Maybe we'll make something. Me, myself, I got nothing to prove. Sometimes an album changes your life because it reflects yourself back to you as you are. But sometimes you don't know exactly who you are or who you want to be. And a really great piece of music can help you figure all of that out. That's what we're talking about in today's conversation. I'm Marissa LaRusso. I'm an associate editor for NPR Music and an editor for our Turning the Tables project. You can read all the essays about life-changing albums and everything else we've published as part of Turning the Tables at npr.org slash turning the tables. Every Wednesday in March, we've been talking about those life-changing albums with writers from the series. And today I'm joined by two of those writers. First, we have Dr. Francesca T. Royster, a professor of English at DePaul University and the author of several books, including a forthcoming book called Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions, and another forthcoming book called Choosing Family, Queer Motherhood and Black Resistance. Welcome, Francesca. Thank you, Marissa. It's so great to be here. Also joining me is writer and editor Alex Ramos. Alex is a former member of Team NPR Music, and they currently are a next-gen critics and arts intern at the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm so glad to have you back on the show, Alex. Hi, I'm so happy to be back here. I'm psyched to talk to both of you today about the way that life-changing albums can help us figure ourselves out. So Francesca, let's start with you. You wrote a really beautiful essay about Tracy Chapman's debut self-titled album. And in the essay, you talk about how right after that album came out, Tracy Chapman was everywhere. She was on TV, on the radio, on tour. So tell me about the first time you encountered her music. Tracy Chapman was really ubiquitous. She went from kind of a somewhat underground presence performing in coffee shops to being on Saturday Night Live the concert for Amnesty International, and she was being parodied on, on Living Color. Like, you couldn't turn and not see her. I first saw her before I graduated. I went to school in Kansas, at Kansas State, and I was getting ready to go to graduate school at UC Berkeley, and it was a really big move for me. I was moving from being comfortable in this place that just felt homey and um, going to some place that was really my dream, but was also completely new. I just knew that Berkeley and its bohemianness was the place to be. So I was watching the Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday concert on TV. This was also kind of part of that movement where the anti-apartheid movement was really taking off and just getting really big. And it was leading up to that big momentous release of Mandela from prison. But people were more and more aware of her and aware of the importance of calling attention to his imprisonment as a symbol of apartheid. So I saw Tracy Chapman, and she was on this roster with all kinds of really incredible people like Stevie Wonder. When she came on, it was clear that she was totally overwhelmed by the crowd, and the camera 
kept panning to this distracted looking crowd, like a stadium crowd at Wembley Stadium in London. And here's this small person with just her guitar and a microphone and this faded black turtleneck. And she starts singing Fast Car. And I watched her move from incredible nervousness, she's a little off key, the sound is really bad, to really getting into her story and coming into her power in a really short period of time. To me, it felt like, oh, this is the person, she's modeling for me what is possible for me in this new setting. And it's okay that I'm afraid, and it's okay that I don't totally know where I'm going or who I want to be. Because even someone who might have questions can still take the stage and make a powerful statement. And then after that, she goes on to perform, talking about a revolution. And by that time, she has the whole crowd in her hands. Like she's just so powerful and straightforward. And everything about her, her voice, her earnestness, her ability to take up space in this very simple but direct way was what I needed at that moment when I was making this big move. Wow, that's so incredible. And what like a serendipitous experience to just watch someone modeling exactly what you needed to see on the verge of this huge change in your life. I want to ask you too, Alex, because I know Tracy Chapman has become an icon for generations of listeners, even those of us who maybe weren't old enough to appreciate her music when she was first putting it out. Do you have any relationship to her music? Are you familiar with this record? I also love this record. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm currently in Berkeley. So I'm sort of in the contemporary version of what Dr. Royster was going through when she was younger. I went to school at California College of the Arts, which is in San Francisco and also used to be in Oakland. And I also heard the whispers about what Tracy Chapman was up to when she was in the city, what houses, what streets she was living in. Also, the people that she dated. I know some of my instructors were also around during that time and would also kind of scope out the place to see if they could see her on the street. And Wow. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about her that's so accessible that she is both this charismatic figure, but she also seems like someone who you might hang out with at a bar or have a class with. And Francesca, you write in your essay about how important her music was to you in graduate school. Can you talk a little bit about what kept you returning to her music after you had that initial incredible experience watching her perform? The way that on that first album, you have this combination of very politically outspoken songs, like talking about a revolution or behind the wall, songs where she's really speaking truth to power, and these really private songs that feel like private songs, Baby, Can I Hold You, songs that feel like they still have this element of not quite being sure. And I think that my own feeling of being both put on the spot in a way to be like one of the few African-American people in my program and how graduate school always encourages you to sound like you know what you're talking about, even if you don't mm -hmm, or that you've totally. read everything <laughs> and you know that you know all the footnotes and there's a way that you're required to have a kind of confidence. We all do our best to profess that confidence, even if we don't have it, but also that sense of still being in formation. And I often think maybe other academics like myself are, are people who postponed our full adulthood until after we've done all the check marks of the goals of our education because we don't have enough time to really reflect. Hmm. And for me, 
Tracy Chapman was an album where I could go into myself and really think about questions that I had and not have full answers. Could you tell us about a particular song that you remember listening to that really exemplifies this quality of kind of being not totally determined and and these personal elements of her music? One of the ones that I love the most is For My Lover, which is Mm -hmm. a kind of peculiar song because it is this sort of country break in the middle of everything. It's got the twang, it's got the slide guitar, it's got the synthesizer that sounds like it's a harmonica. It really sounds a little bit like the Old West. In the song though, Tracy Chapman is singing about love against the odds and kind of what it means to be an outlaw lover. The ways that she talks about being surveyed by the outside, like whether Mm -hmm. whether it's through the medical establishment or the law, there are just these ways that to me speaks to the history of LGBTQ folks. The line where she says, every day I'm psychoanalyzed for my lover, for my lover, they dope me up and I tell them lies. I love that part because there's this true resistant spirit But at the same time, there's also this feeling like she's the fool, you know, for loving so hard. And so there's also that element of uncertainty that is also very resonant for someone who is on the verge of coming out, which I was at that point in my life. Every day I'm psychoanalyzed for my lover, for my lover. Choping up and I tell him lies for my lover, for my lover. I'm the fool. They don't get any love from you. The things we won't do for love. I climb a mountain if I had to. Risk my life so I could have you. I just love the antique part of the song, but also the way that it's offering up a revised history of the 20th century. I love that. That's beautiful. And that was something I wanted to ask about because in your essay, you write about how you were dealing with the pressures of graduate school and the pressures of feeling like you need to know everything and figure out how you even fit into that space, while at the same time coming to terms with your queerness. And in Tracy, you saw someone who even though she wasn't really publicly speaking or identifying as a queer person, you saw something legible in her, but then also that you admired this kind of privateness or strategicness about her identity. There was kind of the rumored Tracy Chapman, especially a few years after that first album. There's always this way that she's performing privacy, but there's even a kind of quiet confidence in that privacy. I love how all of the The big images of her are often of her with her eyes averted or closed, and she has this smile, but it's kind of a smile that's internalized. Whether we're talking about African-American celebrities or we're talking about everyday folks or students, there's kind of this pressure to perform for others and to meet the expectations of other people, to have bling, to be fabulous. And... I think that she never really kowtowed to that pressure. Like she was always, to me, performing, if not authenticity, at least a kind of professionalism that gave room to have a private life. And that was something that I really was hoping for myself then. And I I still kind of hang on to that now, even being way past the experience of being a graduate student. 
it's important to be able to choose the people who you reveal yourself to and to choose the timing for when you connect the personal and the political or the personal and the professional. And that's something that often, I think in general, folks of color sometimes find ourselves not having those choices. I also dealt with queerness in a sort of like internal way. I wasn't performing all of the feelings I had about my sexuality and gender externally. I was hashing them internally. And I feel like I needed a quiet place to do that. I turned to music to sort of expand my inner world. I also feel that way with Tracy Chapman, for sure. Absolutely. And there's a part of your essay, Francesca, where you write so beautifully about that kind of quiet space that Alex is talking about and how Tracy represented that to you. Could you read that for us? What I needed was some space in between just to think. Tracy Chapman created that space of protection, confirmation, and contemplation as I figured out who I was rather than just who others wanted me to be. Given the pressures that I was feeling, especially in graduate school, to represent, that indeterminacy was a pleasure. Tracy Chapman, for me, dramatized the space on the verge of action, where desire begins to crystallize. That crystallization can absolutely happen in that moment of singing, when I was all alone in my room, matching my voice to Chapman's as she digs into those last lines of each song. I love how you describe not just that Tracy herself as a person, as a figure, helped you think about your own identity, but also the way that the music created space for you. I definitely have had those experiences, and Alex, it sounds like you have as well. I'm excited to continue this conversation, but first we have to take a short break. It's All Songs Considered from NPR Music. This message comes from NPR Music's 2022 lead sponsor, State Farm. Each year, NPR Music gives unsigned musicians a chance to submit their original songs to the Tiny Desk Contest. State Farm is proud to support the eighth year of the contest, helping the winner achieve their dreams by going on tour with NPR Music and playing their very own Tiny Desk Concert. Entries over the years have featured surprises like cello paired with electric guitar, a song performed at a lemonade stand, and multiple pets caught on camera. Everyone has their own taste in music, and there are lots of great entries to check out at tinydeskcontest.npr.org. State Farm knows that everyone has a budget, too, and they've got lots of options to fit your lifestyle. For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. It's All Songs Considered. I'm Marissa LaRusso, here with two of our amazing Turning the Tables writers, Alex Ramos and Dr. Francesca T. Royster. Before the break, Francesca, you were talking about how Tracy Chapman's album gave you space to think, where you didn't need to have all the answers figured out. And Alex, that theme of needing space to figure yourself out, it was also a really big theme of your essay. And while Francesca's essay was focused on a singer-songwriter, you know, the kind of music we might usually associate with deep introspection, you were listening to a rock album. But I think a very thoughtful rock album, it was Paramore's Brand New Eyes.
So Alex, tell me what brought you to that album. I like to call them my forever band. And sometime in high school, I came to revisit Brand New Eyes. I think it was just like a right place, right time moment where I was listening to my family's go-to radio station in the car on the way to school. And they'd always play a handful of songs at the beginning of the show. One of those was Brick by Boring Brick by Paramore. And at the time, my family was involved with this specific sect of Christianity. And my mother particularly had an obligation to my great-grandmother to sort of initiate me and raise me in the church as part of some dying wish that she had. As I was growing older and I was growing into myself, I was finding it harder and harder to interact with the church. I turned to music and writing as two things that could really calm the frustration and the anger. Like I said earlier, it expanded my inner world. It gave me a space to sort of explore these feelings and feel them thoroughly because I was living in like a tiny apartment with a number of siblings and it was always crazy and loud and I just needed that space for myself. Paramore has its roots as a band that talked about their Christian faith. I don't know that they would necessarily identify as a Christian rock band and that kind of relationship has changed over time, but I wonder if their relationship to Christianity had any impact on why they were a band you were returning to or or your relationship with the band in general. It seemed like it was running a similar trajectory to my experience at the time, especially looking at the aftermath of when they quote unquote broke up after I think the Brand New Eyes tour. And on those tours, they would sometimes write these hymn-like songs or like intros and outros to their songs that really resonated with me because they sounded familiar. They were using like the same vernacular, they were using the same melodies that you would hear in like a hymn, but it was about other stuff completely. It was about what they were going through as teenagers or as young adults. That made me very emotional, to be honest. (laughs) No, absolutely. I feel like when you hear that kind of vernacular or you hear musical structures that remind you of something that you know so well, it really feels like, oh, this band and I are on this same journey or in the same place or we understand each other. You write in your essay about a lot of particular songs on Brand New Eyes whose messages really resonated with you during that time. Tell me about one in particular. Turn It Off really illustrated my disillusionment, I guess, and my loss of innocence at the time. It was really clear to me that things were turning for the worse, and there wasn't any undoing or unseeing any of the horrible things that I was witnessing, and I really had to just digest that. In my essay, I share a part of an old live journal entry that I had, which is crazy that I still had screenshots of those. But... (laughs) I just remember hearing that song and feeling an overwhelming sense of doom.
often when we think about life-changing albums, you think, okay, this is showing me the way that things could be, or this is giving me hope, which is very useful and life-changing. But it sounds like also listening to this album helped you just like feel the bad feelings that you were feeling, not make them go away, not pretend that they weren't there, but really sit with, okay, things are not gonna get fixed. Things are not necessarily gonna get better if I don't do something different. And the song kind of gave you space to think about that too. For sure. You're thinking maybe you're gonna try to make the religion thing work, for your family and then after a while you get to this place where you're like I actually don't think that it is going to work I think I need to do something different and you write about how it felt to make that decision in your essay can you read a little bit of that for us there is a promise always that I will be a more refined person that I have a future wherein I will be able to carry my burdens with ease and move forward with grace having been able to see myself outside of what was expected of me how I had changed fragmented and pinned down with precision like the butterfly on Brand New Eyes' cover. Through these songs may have been what validated me the most as an individual, away from filial piety and indoctrination. That's beautiful. Francesca, I'm wondering what Alex described about how the songs on this Paramore record helped them kind of feel those difficult feelings or notice the difficult things without necessarily wishing them away. Is that something that Tracy Chapman provided for you? I relate so much to your essay, Alex. And when I was watching the videos for Paramore, especially Haley Williams, and there's often this look of being on the verge in a different way with her. It's different than the confidence of Bikini Kill or other kinds of music that in my own generation, I look to to kind of give me answers to. Her presence is much more simpatico with the presence of Tracy Chapman than maybe the people who are more musically aligned in terms of thinking about Riot Girl in the 90s. I was particularly drawn to how you wrote about Fast Car. You use the word yearning, which I think is the middle of the Venn diagram of Tracy Chapman and Paramore fans. (laughs) It's this sense that there's more for you out there. Maybe you don't know what it is, but It is for sure out there for you. And songs like Fast Car really give the impression, the hope that you have to get out of there and find what it is for yourself. That's so cool. And sometimes it's the non-verbal parts of the song that give you that sense of urgency and yearning. Because in Fast Car, at least, the speaker, she makes mistakes. Like over the course of the song, she has made the wrong choice. And she knows that she's made the wrong choice. But there's also, as you said, like there's a sense of a world that she's still yearning for. She's still reaching by the time we get to the end of the song. Yeah, I feel like yearning is such a thing that unites these two essays and these two albums. And something that I really loved about your essay, Francesca, was how it's not like you were looking for a specific endpoint where you're like, when I get here, I'm going to know who I am. I'm going to be exactly defined in my identity and that will feel good And the same thing with you, Alex, it's not like your essay ended on this note of like, and now I have this exact relationship to faith or to family, but that the idea that things are going to keep evolving and maybe you don't need a strict right answer, that the music gave you space to come to that conclusion, which I thought was just a really beautiful thing that both of your essays have in common. I know in Dr. Royce's essay, she ends with a note about coming out to her mom. And I also end with a note where I talk to my mother about what I should be doing after this. What direction am I going to go? Those songs really motivated us to just communicate with other people. I think because a lot of the time, the music listening, the music enjoyment, the reflecting is so internal. 
we don't get to express those thoughts to other people. The music inadvertently pushed us to say something about it. That's the tipping point to both of our essays is just what happens after we bring up our feelings to the people that we love. Yeah, that's really beautiful, Alex. You're an artist and a writer and the occupational hazard is to stay in your head or maybe even on paper. And sometimes we need the community connection of the art that we love to take us to the next point and to move beyond the hypothetical (laughs) to really connect to people. Yeah, that was actually something I wanted to ask both of you about because, you know, there are in the real world consequences for making these kinds of decisions, for finding your identity. You know, it's not just like an internal process. And the music that we love, even if it is so helpful to us, can't shield us necessarily from homophobia or from the threat of familial rejection. But also I was kind of thinking at the same time, this music that helps us find ourselves or understand ourselves, helps us remember that we're not alone and can put us in community with other people who are like us. And I wonder if that resonates with you at all in thinking about your experiences with these albums. The fact that Tracy Chapman is also talking about the real world, the existence of violence, domestic violence, state violence. Those are kind of reminders that the struggle of the self is also bigger and connected to the world. I think there's a kind of moral obligation that the album is figuring that we have to work through ourselves, but we also have to make it matter to the world in whatever way we choose to do. That's where I think, for me, kind of returning to the music and feeling the journey of the 20-year-old self and my 50-plus-year-old self now and how my knowledge of some of those questions has changed just with experience. When I was thinking about this, I didn't think about community or friends or fellow like fans. I was thinking about my siblings because they were in the car listening to that music with me. And we were sharing a room where I would play that music out loud sometimes. And they would hear the same words that I was hearing. I don't know if they ever read into the music as much as I did. And if they did, did they feel alone? Did they also feel angry? That's something I'm really curious about now. Well, great that you've written about it, Alex, because now they can read it and think about what you're thinking about, which maybe they might not have known. You both wrote about listening to these albums during really pivotal moments in your lives and moments that are in the rear view now. And I'm just wondering if you revisit these albums and if you hear anything new when you listen to them now with a little bit of distance. I don't know if I discover anything as much as I hear it a different way. I used to listen to it and I used to, it used to sound so clear to me, sonically clear. Like I was hearing every layer, every word so clearly, but now it seems so much heavier and noisier. And I didn't realize that at the time. Now it seems like the layers are sort of merging with each other. The voices are just like meshing with the guitar more. And I don't know if that's like indicative of my current headspace. I was going to ask. (laughs) (laughs) I know that I can always kind of come back to it and hear it a different way. That's cool. With Tracy Chapman, I think as I traveled from that first moment of total infatuation and gagahood with the album and played it all the time, over time, I just sort of started focusing on Tracy Chapman, the persona. And going back and listening to the whole album, I became more aware again of the story that's told with each song in an order, you know, like listening to vinyl 
moving from behind the wall to baby, can I hold you? And just that shift in mood that is so masterful in terms of really regulating our emotions over the course of the album. So it's been fun to try to force my Apple Music to really follow the order of the album and not (laughs) shuffle it so I can get that feeling again. Alex and Francesca, thank you so much for talking to me today. This was wonderful. Thank you, Marissa. Thanks, Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Marissa, for having me. Thank you, Dr. Royster. It's been really fun. This is the last episode of our Turning the Tables takeover on All Songs Considered. Thank you to everyone for listening, for reading our essays, and for keeping the conversation about life-changing music going. Don't forget to check out all the essays and podcast episodes at npr.org slash turningthetables. For NPR Music, I'm Marissa LaRusso. It's All Songs Considered. Sorry. Forgive me